time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. Hey, this is Lee Balkum. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast. This is the podcast designed to help you thrive no matter what. And today, I have a very special guest, Michaela Renee Johnson, joins me. Michaela, as a preteen, began a minimalistic life in a 27-foot trailer where she lived in the woods without running water and electricity, and that became the new normal. Now, that wasn't a choice of the family. That was out of necessity, and we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, as we go through this interview. But now she is an award-winning author, a licensed psychotherapist, and the host of the top iTunes podcast, Be You Find Happy. And there she encourages people to speak their truth with grace and live a courageous life of authenticity. You have to be moving forward all the time and doing what she calls constant resets in order to find your happiness. And because of that, she keeps doing that in her own life. She's an avid adventurer and has traveled to over 20 countries and considers herself to be the self-proclaimed boho mom and loves to live in the midst of Northern California with her husband and her young son, a lot of animals. And during her spare time, she somehow manages to find time to hike, do some yoga, garden, golf, read and think about how to help others be happy. So today, we're going to be talking about how she got to where she is based on those uh, early life experiences that equipped her with the capacity of looking for that constant reset. And then we're going to talk about how you can make those constant resets to find your own place of happiness. So join me as I have a discussion with Michaela. Michaela, thanks for being here. I'm excited to talk with you. I'm, I'm interested in hearing about this background story about how you got to here. And then I want us to talk about all these other issues of authenticity and happiness and how you uh, do this reset to happiness. So tell us a little bit about how you got to here before we jump into that. Sure. Well, thanks, Lee. I'm so happy to be here. And, uh, you know, it really started as a journey that um, began when I was young, when I was preteen, actually. Um, At the time, my parents had um, a very successful construction business. I was about 11 years old. And all things were going very well until the economy crashed. And uh, rather than declare bankruptcy, my dad decided to do a very honorable thing and sold literally everything that we owned and purchased a 20 seven foot fifth wheel and moved us to the rural Sierra Nevadas where we lived that way um, with no electricity and no running water um, until the point in which I moved out. So we actually were um, building the home um, from scratch with cash. But back then we bucketed um, six gallon jugs of water to the trailer. Um, My dad was working as a water truck tender after kind of closing the construction business. So he would bring home 36 gallons and we would fill up the trailer and that's what we had um, to live off of. And, um, you know, we used uh, the nature for the bathroom until we got a porta potty in the yard. Um, And I say yard, but it's really just the space outside of the trailer. And so that upbringing um, was very uh, much appreciated by my brothers who kind of saw it as like this never ending camping trip. But for me, being the age that I was, I was hyper aware of uh, material things, you know, certain having the latest clothes and the latest makeup and things like that. And so 
I definitely felt coming into that more kind of sensitive time of the teenage years that I uh, was missing out, that I didn't have what other girls had, um, what other people my age had. And I also was old enough to experience the sense of loss, having lived in a very large two-story home in the up-and-coming Granite Bay area of the suburbs of Sacramento, um, to literally having nothing. So, um, you know, I didn't see it through the lens of my parents, obviously, and, and what they were trying to accomplish or, um, or what they really had to do for lack of options at the time. So I just was kind of in my teenage mind, just, uh, you know, dealing with that loss and, and not recognizing that it was a loss for them too. Yeah, that was, so you went from living a pretty normal background to uh, not homeless is not quite it, but it, I mean, technically speaking, you y'all were homeless. You were living in a trailer to without a lot of essentials to make do. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, in hindsight, what their plan was is something that now people do all the time with hashtag van life and Mm -hmm. kind of living the hectic, crazy material world and and living simpler. Um, but at the time it was definitely unorthodox. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think that my parents actually saw it as a way to create a more financially stable future for themselves where they were completely debt free and things like that. So I think their long-term strategy was a really good one. Um, but I don't know how, you know, like reflecting back now as a parent myself, how they raised the three of us, uh, you know, me being 12 and my brothers being six and four years younger than me, um, in 27 square feet. Yeah. That's a (laughs) tiny house. (laughs) That's a whole nother level of tiny house. I mean, it's pretty impressive that we all survived. (laughs) They were doing some chic things before it was chic and really not by choice. I mean, they were doing what they could to survive. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm curious on what that instilled within you. I mean, obviously there's some trauma there of having to deal with the loss and, and some grief that, um, you know, you you saw your path one way and then suddenly it diverts to the Sierra Nevadas. But my guess is there's some lessons that came out of that in hindsight. What what were some of the lessons that you learned from that? Yeah, I think hindsight took quite a journey. Hmm. So, uh, you know, immediately following, I moved out at, well, I was actually 17 when I moved out to go to university, but um, I had it in my mind that I was going to do it better than my parents did. And I was going to gain um, respect and credibility in the world via material things. And so for me, that was uh, the fancy car, the two-story craftsman house by the by the beach. Um, and I attained all of those things and still realized, um, through that process that I wasn't happy. I wasn't truly happy. Hmm. Um, so I came full circle in my life and it was only at that point that I realized that my parents were really on the right track from the very beginning, which is that it doesn't take much. And it certainly doesn't take in extrinsic things to have that level of happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So t- talk a little bit about that journey. So you, you left at 17 mm-hmm. to go to college. Was that, yeah. w- was that leaving earlier or did you just you know track on through and that happened to be when you left? It just happened to be that okay. I turned, I turned 18 after I graduated high school. My mom started me young. So I just happened to be 17, but I definitely was on a mission to leave the small town uh-huh. that I had grown up in and 
do something with my life. And that was something that was going to be much bigger than whatever the town could offer. Hmm. Ironically, I am currently sitting in that town now. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a great place, right? It has to offer so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you left and did a degree in journalism. I did and um, and had a very, very fabulous career traveling nationally um, as a marketing director working for a Fortune 500 company, did a lot of work in media. Um, so, you know, was kind of just chugging along and chasing that that American dream and was in a relationship that was incredibly toxic. And, uh, it got to a point in the relationship where, um, some things unfolded that were not recoverable. They were, um, events unfolded. And this is kind of talked about in, in my memoir, teetering on disaster that I couldn't turn back. And so it was at that moment that I realized once again, I was going to be losing everything I'd built. And, um, but it came with a different colored glasses in the sense that I felt so incredibly free for the first time from needing those things. And truly after everything had kind of wrapped up, I felt so happy. I really felt like I was identify identifying with my true authentic self. Um, I was set on a course to, um, do what I wanted to do passionately and was really living for me for the first time ever. Mm. And that felt really good. And that living for you path was, what was the path? Was that when you went into counseling? Yeah. And and it was right before that when I started, um, I started publishing little blurbs. Um, I called it my online journal and that's what teetering on disaster started as. And it was my story from my childhood along with mixed in with the current situations that I was dealing with. And I had women reaching out from all over the world. This was before blog really became a word. And, um, they, you know, they were telling me how the story was inspiring them to look at things a different way or live a different way. And I started to realize that I wasn't aligned with my true path, that there was more in me to do in the way of inspiring others to, Uh, What I say now is speak your truth with grace and live a courageous life of authenticity. And it really takes um, tapping into who you are to be able to speak that truth and to be able to set those boundaries and create a communication style that is you expressing your needs and your wants um, without the fear of what others think and feel about that. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's, that's kind of what started happening. And at the time, I was seeing my own therapist. And, uh, it was really fantastic because I would show up to her office and she would kick off her shoes and she had her cup of tea and she had her blanket and she'd sit on the couch. And I thought that is a great job. (laughs) (laughs) I want that job. So, um, I signed up for master's classes and went back and got a master's degree in psychology and eventually became a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so talk some more about you haven't stayed just as a psychotherapist. I mean, you've you've done uh, writing and other things. So talk some more about where that journey has taken you since then. You know, I started writing as a very young girl. So my first journal was actually in the third grade. Mm. I got this little um, colorful notebook from a birthday party. It was in the gift bag. And that was really the first time that I realized that writing was a space that was safe for me. So it was somewhere that I could go and um, 
you know, gripe and grunt and be angry about things and also share my hopes and dreams without the judgment of others. So it really, um, you know, was a powerful therapeutic tool for me from a very young age. Um, I had my first work of, um, published work in the Sacramento Bee when I was 14 Mm -hmm. and it was about truth and lying. So I've, I've always kind of connected with the written word as a way to deal with my own stuff. And, um, you know, I've worked, um, I've worked as a journalist, I've worked for newspapers. I've, I've, I've kind of taken that whole path. And to this day, I still do have an online journal, but, um, writing has always been a place that I could go to and feel safe. And I really think that, um, what that has done for me over the years, though, has also opened me up to uh, other people's opinions. And in the social media world, you know, there's a lot of these kind of like keyboard warriors that just think they can say whatever they want to say. And some of the reviews even on my memoir are hilarious um, because I think sometimes people don't realize there's a real human who wrote that story. <laughs> and in the case of a memoir, it was that real human's real life. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, this isn't, you know, a fiction novel that was written by an AI. So, um, so it's been an interesting uh, dynamic of how to um, speak my truth always um, and deal with that fear that can kind of come up. So uh, for me, I'm very passionate about the process of speaking your truth with grace and how empowering it can be. It's interesting you bring that up because you're you're talking about um, there, there are two battles: the inner battle and uh, inner critic and the outer critic. I mean, the actual people who are critiquing. Most people are struggling with the inner critic that shuts them down before they ever get started, but. Uh, I I get the same thing. I get the hate messages and yep. <laughs> the same things, and I'm like, well, yep. who do you think is back here? Actually, right. And so, what? How did that change your perception of um, what it takes to be happy and what it takes to keep being authentic? So I think you've got to check in with yourself on the daily. And I think a lot of times we get stuck in these habits that we've created because as humans, it's just hardwired in our reptilian brain to have that structure and have those habits and those habits feel comfortable. Um, The trouble with some of those habits is they don't serve us and they can be, uh, you know, almost toxic in certain ways, certain things that we do daily that um, feel comfortable to us, even though they're not serving us. And so I encourage people to look for windows of opportunity in their day where they can connect with their authentic self or even just ask themselves, is this thing that I do every day still serving me? Mm. And um, it's, it's interesting how for me, when I started to really connect with those emotions that would flare up in certain situations, I started to realize that th- that was the window to my authentic self and to my true happiness. Um, I use road rage as an example a lot because that's such an easy one that I think a lot of people can relate to. Um, but you can be having the greatest day in the world and then you get stuck in traffic and now suddenly you're late to something you were really looking forward to and people are driving like jerks around you and you're just all of a sudden finding yourself spiraling in that really unhappy negative space. And that is a perfect opportunity to, to say in the moment, like I'm here now 
what around me is happening that I can find some happiness in. So maybe it's a great song on the radio that you can sing loud to, or maybe it's a beautiful cloud um, in the sky that you can kind of um, connect with. And then another um, great thing along those same lines is, you know, people drive to work the same way every day. And um, even that can create an element of unhappiness or sadness or um, feeling stifled. And so maybe even just driving home on a different road and noticing the houses or the kids that are out front playing or something like that, where you can insert little types of happiness, where you've created certain habits that you, um, or narratives that you've stuck yourself in. Let's, let's define a couple of words for, for you. How, what does it mean? Let's start with happiness. What does happiness mean? And secondarily, what does authenticity mean? Sure. So I feel like happiness, somebody just recently told me, um, on a, on a podcast that I was on that, um, happiness, uh, specifically translates in Latin to, um, to joy and authenticity in some way. And for me, that seemed just as vague, you know, Mm -hmm. I think happiness is one of those things that does not, um, that does not have a definition. So my happiness is different than your happiness. And I think at the end of the day, um, the key to happiness is resiliency. It's how quickly can you bounce back when things aren't going your way, when things are making you feel sad, anxious, depressed, worried. Um, And that is really what translates into happiness is how quickly you can bounce back from those situations. So for me, happiness isn't something that's so easy to define because it is so subjective and it is so different for everybody. So in my opinion, um, I think that we have to look at the micro moments that happen during our day and look for things that create a sense in us, a feeling inside of us that feels good. And I actually use this phrase often. I say, that feels good to me. Or if somebody says something, I'll say, that feels better to me. Um, Because that's more descriptive of what's happening inside. And I think that's less um, pressure on... I feel happy because I know happiness can be ripped from us in a moment. Hmm. So you talked about the uh, kind of word, the etymology of that word, um, and you kept using that word happen. And one of the things that I know about the etymology is that happy and happen share the same root, that it's something external, (laughs) right? So um, if you're talking about the happy, what happened as you were talking that allowed you to make a switch? And so there is that that piece, but the, you're talking to something deeper that um, it's not that out there has to make you happy, but there's a resilience within you that deals with what is happening. You know, if you're if you're uh, stuck in a traffic jam, to it's not the traffic jam, but what else can you find from within to restore your resilience? Is that is that fair? Yes, yes, you nailed it. That's exactly. I love. I love the way that you put it. That's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, and I haven't heard the happen happy happening um, connection before, so I love that. I'm yeah. going to dive more into that myself. <laughs> and it's one of the things that I sometimes critique the happiness movement with is that um, it, when we look at it, most people are waiting for something to happen to make me happy. Exactly. 
exactly. Yes. And that's that's a trap. Yeah, and because, that's a trap. Yeah. Yes. Um, so if you're waiting for, um, I don't know, uh, your parents to hit the successful business for having that happen so you can move out of the trailer into the two-story house again, that's yep. – that's may not happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how do you deal with that? And yeah. um, But you talked about the authenticity piece, and it sounds like in your mind, the authenticity piece is a path to happiness that's deeper than what happens. Yeah, I think we get into situations in our relationships at work um, with our spouses, with our friends, where um, we're not speaking our authentic truth. We're not expressing our true needs, our true wants. And the reasons are usually based in fear. Um, either I like this relationship so much that I don't want to say anything that might disrupt it, or I'm afraid that I'll be rejected. Very powerful human response. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, being social creatures, we have an immense desire to fit in. Um, so we see this in all sorts of situations, even with teenagers and their parents. You know, they're not speaking their authentic truth because they don't want to be rejected or abandoned. Mm -hmm. um, those emotions are big and heavy, and so uh, we find ourselves, I think, a lot of times in these relationships where we're not speaking our truth. We're not. Uh, we're not saying what we know we feel inside. Um, because we haven't figured out how to say it without fear of losing the relationship or hurting the other person or whatever that might look like. So instead we live in kind of this, this shallow water that feels safer than wading out in the deep where those emotions exist. And, um, the other, the flip side of that is I think sometimes we've lost sight of our authentic self. I think we start telling ourselves these little fibs to fit in to these relationships and we start to believe the fibs that we tell ourselves. Um, and then at some point we wake up and we're like, wow, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I want. I'm unhappy or I'm depressed or I'm anxious. And, uh, that's, that's the piece of authenticity that people talk about that feels so difficult to hold on to. And I think especially um, with social media, the way that it is and seeing our friends' lives and drawing the connections to how we should be, you know, and those sorts of things. And I think those are all the spaces that, that we've created to shield ourselves from that authentic inner self that does exist. It's interesting you bring that the social media piece in, um, because I think that is a, a huge comparison point for people. You know, you're um, it, wanting to be authentic. Yeah. But if you put your authentic self out there on social media, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not going to match your your friends. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Authentic self. Yeah. So that uh, creates a, a bit of a crisis internally. And, and just to enlarge that a little bit. I wonder how that intersects with the conversation we had about you writing a book yeah. where it's your authentic story to have somebody um, throw jabs at it. Yeah. And and that is a kind of in a, a, a microcosm of what we all experience in that in that fear of that. Yeah. And I think that's exactly part of the reason, you know, if somebody had told me 10 years ago when when teetering first published and teetering republished this past year and has been met with great praise. Um, but when I first published that book, if people would told me would have told me this would have turned me on this journey where I would become a psychotherapist, work on my stuff, deeply work on my stuff, write four children's books, 
start a podcast and publish a self-help book, I would have laughed. Hmm. I wasn't complete enough as a person yet. I hadn't lived that journey to get to the point where I was comfortable walking in my own skin as my authentic self. I put my authentic self out there, but at the time, uh, I didn't, I did not take in that information in the way I take it in now, which is a totally different way of responding. Um, the way that I see people now when they respond with those comments is more of from a psychotherapy lens of what they must be going through to be in a space, um, to speak to me in that way, a perfect stranger and how hard their other relationships must be with those people that aren't perfect strangers. So I look at it in such a different way now. Um, but I think the key component to that is an empathetic heart. And I think a lot of times uh, we can't show up authentically unless we're willing to show up um, in a way that we can be empathetic towards others and um, recognize that sometimes it's not about us. What's interesting about what you just said to me is that when you when you put out that authentic piece, you weren't ready. You didn't have the tools. You didn't have a clear understanding, but you didn't wait for that. I mean, it was um, it wasn't a well, when I'm finally ready to release this, when I finally feel authentic, I'll be authentic. It was I'll be authentic and deal with that. So um, that's one of the things that gets people stuck waiting for it to be, I'm not going to be fearful. Yeah. No fear. I've got the tools. I'm ready for this. What crossed it for you that you didn't wait until there was no fear? I mean, I I suspect you're like me when you hit publish on anything, you're going, uh, here it goes (laughs) (laughs) out into the ether and for anybody to critique. So the cloud. (laughs) Yeah. So what happens, um, what happened that at that point when you didn't have all that clarity to, How did you get beyond that? How did you hit publish and run with it? You know, honestly, it was a combination and I've never had anybody ask me this question. So I really appreciate the question. But um, for me, it was a combination of immensely feeling the inspirational power of the women that were reaching out to me and knowing that that story could not be silenced, that it needed to be told. Just having like this intrinsic sense that I needed to do it, that I, that I had to put it out there. Um, and then there was this other kind of youthful, jovial, um, not jaded by the world exuberance that I think drove a lot of what came of that. I, I think, um, I think I kind of felt, you know, we see this in kids a lot. They're willing to, to be on the swing and they're swinging so high and they're getting higher and higher and higher. And then they're like, okay, I'm going to launch myself off, you know? And us as parents were like, and then they land and they're fine. Or maybe they break their arm and they're fine, but they did it anyway. And I think I still had that little bit of spirit when I first published teetering. I think that still was coming up for me. Um, But I also think that with that, there is a sense of naivety and that naivety can be dangerous. And um, so I think that's uh, what I experienced a little bit of afterwards was. Don't don't you think, though, that that I mean, when I look back, I'm like, my naivete is what led to child number one, certainly child number two (laughs) (laughs) and every business I've launched and every book I've written. I mean, at some point, if I knew 
it, what, what it was going to be and not with the kids. I would have had them anyway, just so they know. <laughs> you know still going through that. But, it, you know, if you knew what was coming, a lot of times, and so, and sometimes I'm sitting there going, okay, I'm just not going to worry about it. You know, I'm just going to go forward and, and I'll, I'll do the not knowing piece and go anyway. And it sounds like that was a piece of what you're talking about. Just go and figure it out. Yeah. And even to add on that, just today, I led an art and therapy workshop just before we came on together. And the first assignment they were working on creating their own ink blot. And I gave them absolutely no instruction. And I said, I don't want you to think about this. I want you to grab the paint and I want you to just go with it. And afterwards, we processed how it felt to not have a plan to not have a color scheme picked out, to not have any expectation. And everybody in the room said the same thing as we went around and discussed our experience, which was it felt somewhat freeing and also incredibly terrifying to not have a, a solid plan and a goal and an objective and to have tools and everything laid out. But the end result was so much better than I ever could have experienced mm. or expected. And and people talked about and reflected on times in their life where they just went with the flow, where they just let things unfold, where a friend showed up and said, let's go to dinner, and that those were some of the greatest times in their life. Uh, the flip side of that was that the next time I said, I want you to create an inkblot with intention. I want you to pick out colors that you that you like, that you think go well together. I want you to have an idea now that you know how this ink blot activity works for what it's going to look like. And the same thing after they were complete, they said they felt this immense pressure to do it right. And that they stumbled on, well, what if I pick the wrong color and what if it doesn't turn out well? And then they weren't even as happy with the final outcome. And so it is really powerful when we let and allow um, what can come up for us that is so much bigger and so much beyond anything that we could have expected or created. Mm. So there's another piece that, um, that, that one was just to keep on go just to push forward. Yeah. The other was that it, because it mattered. Um, and, um, I'm interested in following that up a little bit. You said you did it because of the women who had contacted you and you realized that, that there's, whether you call it a mission or a purpose or something in there, it mattered. You, you, you knew it made a difference. And I'm wondering how that fits in um, with all those pieces. I mean, it matters to be authentic with a partner. It matters to be authentic with parents or kids or whatever. How does that fit in for, for you? And I think that um, this is the component where we have to show up in a way that we're constantly able to speak our truth. And when we show up with people that matter and in ways that matter and in things that we just feel we must do, as long as we're expressing our needs and our wants in a way that is true to us and is with grace, then, um, then there's, if we end up hurting someone or if we end up misstepping or stumbling, it's okay because we showed up in an authentic way. We showed up um, in a way where we knew at the time we were sharing in the way that felt comfortable for us and that we were expressing in a way that didn't hurt others. Even though other people may not like what we have to say or what we're bringing or how we show up, um, 
at least we're coming at it from a space that's with grace. And that's an important component to, I think, everything that we're talking about. And for me, with that memoir, just to kind of tie it together for you, um, me showing up in a way that was authentic, but also spoke my truth with grace meant a lot of names were left out of the book. It meant that there were components that I withheld, not because I wasn't sharing the whole truth, but because they didn't need to be said because things could be implied without hurting somebody or without, um, in, they could be shared in a way that was authentic and true to me, but was also with grace and didn't, um, hurt other people in a way that was yucky, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk more about when you say grace, cause you've said that several times, what does, what does it mean to do it with grace? So I see a lot of people in my psychotherapy practice that, um, we're in working with couples specifically that have something to say that is burning inside of them that, that they know the other person isn't going to like. And there's a difference between coming at a conversation from a, you do this and you do that. And you make me feel this way. And these things you've done have caused this to showing up and saying, I'm in a space right now where I respect you dearly as a person. You're the, the parent of my child perhaps, but I can't show up authentically to this relationship. I I don't feel like I'm in it. I feel like I'm emotionally not able to be here. And that could be for this reason or that reason or whatever, knowing that that is not something the other person is going to want to hear, but that is your authentic truth. And that is, um, you're, you're presenting it in a way that is not attacking the other person for how you feel. And the reality is, the other person can't argue how you feel, right? So if you, if I ask you, how, how is your day? And you say, you know, I'm feeling a little bit sour because a guy cut me off in the parking lot. Um, I can't argue how you feel. I can't say, well, no, you don't. You're having a great day. You know, you, you own that. You own how you feel. However, I can have seen that the person that you claimed cut you off in the parking lot was actually you on your cell phone, not paying attention to what was going on at all. So in that way I can show up and I can validate you without agreeing with what you're saying. Mm. And I think people don't often always realize that. So I can show up, I can validate you and I can say, well, I'm really sorry that you're having such a sour day, but I don't have to agree with the part that you claim it was because somebody cut you off. Right. Yeah, is it, I was thinking about you. You so nobody can tell you, you know, if you're feeling a certain way. I, I'm aware, having been in that same therapy office with couples, that they <laughs> do often say something about how the yeah. person. So I was sitting there thinking about my daughter had a a teacher, and that you know she would say you can't do that, and the children would say yes, I can, and she would say okay, you can, but you shan't. <laughs> There's oh, a there difference. You, <laughs> you can, but you shan't. I like that. So stop. <laughs> So there is that, you know, someone can tell you how you should be feeling. It's just not, uh, you don't have to let that in. There's a place where you can say, yeah, that's, so you you actually made a shift though. Um, So one frame was about blame and the other was about expressing your, your, where you're coming from and kind of claiming your state in response to the situation. Yeah. Is that the grace piece? Yeah. And I think both of those are areas where speaking your truth with grace can come up. And so I was showing on the, um, on the kind of, um, 
uh, on both sides, how you can uh, be the person who arrives and says, this is how I'm feeling and speaks with truth, mm-hmm. uh, speaks your truth with grace. You could also be on the flip side of that and be a receiving person who can um, be present and validate and speak your truth with grace without having to acknowledge or agree with what the other person's saying. So, um, and I think there's power in that. I think there's power in knowing um, that you can sit with someone in a relationship and be fully present and acknowledge and not have to take sides, especially when it doesn't align with how you feel. And so that's the piece where I think sometimes in these relationships, we agree or we disagree, even though it doesn't align with us at all. And Mm. so I love the idea of not committing to a side, you know, don't go red or blue, pick the middle party, you know, go green party, whatever, so that you can take in the information and uh, listen to acknowledge and not listen to respond. Because when we're, when we're responding, when we're, when we're listening to respond, um, it's tends to be emotional and quick and not full of all of the truth that lives inside of us. Yeah. I, you know, I've also often talked with couples about the difference between agreeing with them and understanding what they're saying, you know, and that that is yeah. the fundamental difference that somehow we've gotten this idea that in order to be in relationship, we have to agree on with each other on everything yeah. rather than trying to understand where the other person's coming from. And as I reflect on that, most of the time people want to be understood. They don't really at a base point, I don't really care if people agree with me, right. but I do want to be heard out and I want to be um, it's some understanding of what I'm saying. Uh, and it's interesting how we have a hard time crossing that over and, and moving into that graceful place because non-graceful is let's you either agree with me or you're you're my enemy. I mean, that's what it kind of boils down yeah. to. Yep, absolutely. As you were talking, I was just thinking about we just installed this new software program and it doesn't have um, this functionality that I think is really a requirement and not an enhancement. Um, but the company just kind of keeps coming back and saying, it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. And really all I want is for them to hear me and say, wow, I can see how difficult this is for you to have to manually do these things. Um, and we'll consider making a change. That's all, you know, like you don't have to agree or disagree that it's working right or not working right. Just hear me and acknowledge what I'm saying, and and I think that's true to your point. So they're quickly becoming the enemy. Yeah, yeah, and you know, even they say it just doesn't do that. My response would be, well, make it do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now we're at an impasse. Yeah, can't and shan't. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can, but you shan't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. I wanted to tie in one more piece that uh, you talked about: how happiness is about constant reset. Yeah. What's, what's the constant reset about? Yeah, so I think that's kind of tying back in this idea of resiliency. And um, I think where we get stuck is uh, we want to be in a relationship that makes us happy. But the whole thing is you're never going to be in any relationship that's going to bring you 24-7 happiness. And if you're a parent, you can understand this. Um, You know, our children, they can bring us the world's greatest happiness, but then they do something so mind-blowing or terrifying or they get sick and suddenly we feel the saddest Um, or most unhappiest or most worried that we have ever felt. And so I think people get stuck in this idea that, um, 
if I get my dream home, I'm going to be happy. Yes, until your dream home floods or until a fire burns down your dream home or something hopefully not as tragic as that, um, that rips your happy factor. And suddenly this thing that brought you so much happiness is now the source of your greatest disappointment. Um, so I think that the idea happiness is a constant reset is to normalize this happy that we can put in parentheses, um, that lives in some cloud that we're all having a difficult time obtaining to say, yeah, it's attainable. Happiness is those feelings I feel in the fleeting moments. That feels good. I like that better. This meal is bringing me a level of happiness right now because I'm sharing it with this other person or because it tastes delectable, whatever it might be. Um, And recognizing that three minutes from now, they may bring the next dish to your table and it's going to burn your tongue Mm -hmm. and having that recognition that we have to grab those micro moments that happen. And those as a collective are what make up happy. I was having a conversation with a a person who's talking about the neurobiology of that. Our brain is really a a contrast um, detector. It notices the differences between things. And mm-hmm. that's so if, you know, if I'm living somewhere that my contrast, that dream house, wow, that's so much better than where I am now. Mm-hmm. But when I get there, the contrast goes away. You know, it, it just is. It's it's the background. Absolutely. And wow. I still have to yeah. clean it, you know, and you, it still has yard yeah. work. And it's, you know, and now it's just a house and the same a new car. It'd be, oh, a new car until I've driven it for a month and suddenly it's the car. And yeah. so the contrast is part of what uh, establishes our state. If you put your Absolutely. hand in hot water, you go, ooh, that was a lot hotter than where it was. Mm-hmm. But if you slowly mm-hmm. turn up the temperature, you know, it's warm, it's warm, it's a little warmer. But after a while, you kind of lose track of that and the contrast goes away in, in anything. And, and part of our state is based in, is there a contrast between, you know, where we are and that place that gets us to happy? Absolutely. Oh, I love that. I love the contrast, the contrasting analogy. Yeah. And and I think that we um, often find ourselves in these polar opposite environments because they feel comfortable. Mm. <laughs> they feel like what we know. It's something different, wildly different than what I felt a moment ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's powerful. If you, if you eat something spicy, you know, it's, it's well, like, a better example, ice cream. The first bite is, in my mind, it's the best thing ever. Absolutely. Ten bites later, I'm going, it's ice cream, you know, and, it's and just so ice cream. it yeah. loses itself. And, and that's, I think, part of where that chasing happiness is often the next contrast, you know, the next thing yeah. that's going to make a difference. And so for you, that constant reset is actually being able to spend some time looking for the micro pieces, not for the next big contrast. Exactly. Yeah. The, the ones that maybe don't seem as rewarding, um, but in the moment really can be. Hmm. Yeah. So living in a tw- 27 foot structure can be happy if you're not looking for the two story place. You can find it with how close you are with everybody, how much you can right. share your life. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you what, we we created so many happy moments with nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, truly, the the fun that we created and the memories that we made and the things that we did um, defined uh, everything that I eventually became and everything that I eventually circled back to. So I, I think that... Um, that definitely was an eye-opening experience on where happiness might be, and it's not outside of us. 
It's interesting how those places of hardship are often the alchemical cauldron that leads us to something, <laughs> you know, later on you go, oh, there it is. Back to that. Yeah. So yeah. tell us, uh, tell us some about how to get in contact with you and, and how to follow up with uh, your podcast and other things. Yeah. So my website, MichaelaRenee.com is M-I-C-H-A-E-L-A-R. E-N-E-E.com. My mom picked the most difficult name ever. <laughs> <laughs> for URL, for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, or you can search BU Find Happy and find the podcast everywhere that podcasts are played. All my books are on Amazon as well. And under Michaela Renee Johnson, is that? Yes. Okay, yep. Yeah. And we'll put the the connectors to your podcast and to your website in case somebody is out driving and not trying to have road rage or you know walking <laughs> yeah. or something else. Uh, they Taking can just someone else's happy factor by that's right by trying to find it right then. We'll we'll let that wait until you can click on in the show notes. But Michaela, thank you so much for being here and thank you for sharing so much uh, so that others can figure out how to make that constant reset and find their happiness. Oh, thanks for having me, Leah. It was a great chat. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Thrivology Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at Thrivology.com or at ThrivologyMagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T-H-R-I-V-E-O-L-O-G-Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Thrivology.